Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. As you may know, Tim Price is no longer on Twitter, but he is on Substack. Go to timprice.substack.com. That's timprice.substack.com. Our very special guest this week is Vitaly Katzenelson. Vitaly Katzenelson, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Well, it's absolutely great to have you on. I'm so excited about this particular show because we've got two value investors, two very skilled writers. So there's going to be a lot to talk about. But um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of value investing, could you give us a brief background about your your life and how you came to be a value investor? Well, let me start back uh, backwards, I guess. So I today, I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm a CEO of IMA, which is a value investment firm in Denver. I have a wife and three kids. And I absolutely love my life here. Okay, so that's a... Now, if we rewind, um, I was born in Murmansk, Russia. Murmansk is a city in the northwest Russia. If you look at the map of Russia, if you look at Norway, it's at the very northern tip of Norway. Like it's a few hundred miles away. It's less than you know, a few hundred miles away from Norway. Um, so it's a very long nights during this winter time, uh, very short days. It's almost like the opposite of Denver, you, you know, right? Because Denver is a... Uh, like compared to Murmansk, Seattle would appear to be a sunshine state. While Denver is the sunshine state, you know, it's a, uh, so it's, a, you know, so it's a long nights. Um, I grew up in the socialism. Uh, and uh, so I got to experience everything, all the great things socialism has to offer. So when the new generation think that they can do better, you know, they, they can do better, you know, they can build, uh, they embrace socialism. I just beg them to, you know, to you know, to look at every socialist experience and see how horribly it failed. And I, and so I am an, I'm not a big socialist fan. Um, so uh, and we came to that. So my family left. Uh, my family left Russia in, in 1991, uh, and we came to Denver. Uh, and uh, you you outline obviously a lot of this in in your book, which yeah. um, is your. So you've written. Uh, a few books and one of them your latest one is soul in the game which we will obviously talk more about but you'd written a book about value investing because you are in fact a, a value in investor you run a fund oh yeah no, absolutely um so yes yeah, so ima is a value investment firm and we, we manage separate accounts uh so it's a they're like commingled into one kind of vehicle they're just you know, each client's accounts managed individually and customized to their objectives but Yes, I'm a diehard value investor, and my first two books, one was Active Value Investing, which I wrote, I wrote in 2007, and this book was basically written for kind of a diehard value investor. Then about three years later, uh, Wiley, who was the publisher of the first book, came to me and said, Vitaly, we have this series called The Little Books Of, and these books are basically written for somebody who is a smart person, sophisticated but not an expert in investing. Would you want to take your first book and basically rewrite it to 
you know, to, you know, to this very different um, reader. And I thought I loved the challenge of that. And so I rewrote and simplified and uh, uh, shortened my first book tremendously. And it became the little book of sideways markets. And I'll tell you, like there is a, so much value in like, I, I actually am lucky because I was given a second shot to write the same book. And I would argue my second book is a much better book than my first one because I was able in three years and learned how to say things better. I figured out what's more important, what's less important. However, there is no way I would be able to write my second book if I didn't write the first one. Right. That's the key. So, so there is a lot of value in rewriting and shortening things and you can learn a lot and you can make a much better article or book by doing this. I'm going to have to put you on the spot now, Vitaly, and ask you for your definition of, what, of how you define value. Well, I'll give you two definitions. One of them will be wrong. Value is, you know, the first definition is the wrong one, is basically buying cheap stocks. Mm. The second definition, or actually, let me, I mean, let me clarify, statistically cheap stocks. That's the first definition. The second definition is the value investing is a philosophy. It's a kind of a set of rules or a set of rules of how you analyze companies. And when I say those rules, think of it as, I call them commandments. In fact, I wrote this essay called The Six Commandments of Value Investing. And, and, I, and I argued that I'm more efficient than God because it took God 10 commandments, you know, and I, it only took me six. But so in those six commandments, basically, what are they? And let me mention a few just to save time. Number, the most important one is that you analyze companies not as pieces of paper, but as businesses. And when you do this, that puts you in the shoes of investor, not a speculator or a trader, Okay. So you analyze companies as pieces of businesses, as if you were about if, if you were about the whole company. The second one is you need margin of safety, okay? Because no matter how much analysis you do, you may still end up being wrong about the future. So therefore, you need to buy the stock at significant discount to what it's worth. It has to be undervalued. Remember, I did not say it has to be trading at 0.5 times book or nine times earnings. No, it just has to be undervalued to what, you know, what, what your analysis leads you to believe it's worth. And, all, and all, sorry to cut in, but on that point, do you need to have a, a theory as to why it's undervalued or do you just accept that it's undervalued and, and exploit it from that basis? Um, the, re the reason I ask is because a lot of the time we're, because we're, we're fishing in the same pond, I suspect. We're, we're probably, I if, if you could see me, I suspect you'd say only our mothers could tell us apart. So we both like, <laughs> we, we both like writing. We both, we both practice value investing. We both written books about it. The, for me, the issue is you can waste a lot of time trying to find it, trying to trying to find a narrative that explains why stuff is cheap. It's a waste of time. Um, you'll never, you'll well, never know. You'll never precisely because that would imply, you know, what every other investor and shareholder in the who engages in that company stock is actually thinking because you'll never know that. Not even Goldman Sachs will know that. No, so, so some, so okay, so sometimes you know what the bear case is, but not all the time. And uh, so, like, um, I'll give you one example. Um, we own cable stocks, 
And there is a very defined bear case why these companies are hated today. So for us to overcome that, for us to buy the stock, we basically had to overcome the bear case. Which were, so and I would argue we were lucky because there was a very well-defined bear case. It doesn't mean that our analysis was limited just to this bear case. But in this case, we did know like what's the other side, you know, you know, what the other side, other side thinks about, you know, why this company is cheap, why, you know, uh, you know, what are the challenges in the business? A lot of times you won't be that lucky. And then you just have to do your research and figure you know, out, you know, and figure out what the company is worth. And, you know, and, uh, you know, you won't have that, you know, you won't be, uh, and you were going to have to, you know, you, you won't have the narrative. Yeah. Because there's a Ben Graham quote, I think, that's quite apposite. It's quite, quite relevant to this topic, which is, you are neither right nor wrong because the crowd disagrees with you. You're right because your data and reasoning are right. That's exactly so, right. So I'd say, what, what for me, one of the, the, the frustrations of, of, of value investing is, and I, I was really intrigued in the book that you, you, you spent some time going into the, the literal philosophy of, of stoicism. So uh-huh. I just gave you that Ben Graham quote, and here's one I thought from the from the from your book that sounded uh-huh. almost identical, which is, um, I could not figure out for a long. Sorry, in our relationships, we should set a goal not for someone to love us, but to behave according to our values, to be worth loving, and to be a good, caring partner. We cannot control whether people will love us, but we can control our actions and our behavior. And for me, those those two sentiments are almost the same. The same sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I was not writing about value investing, but I can see how that applies to it. Absolutely. Um, no, it's just it's a, like if I'm lucky, I you know, there would be a short seller or somebody who would have a thesis why, you know, you know against you know against the company, and then I can do my research and look at their thesis, and then determine. A lot of times, I can go their thesis and say actually they are right. There's a lot of truth to that. But the stock is so expensive, so cheap, that a lot worse things are already priced into it, right? Mm. So um, sometimes we look at the company and it's so insanely cheap, and I have no idea why this cheap. There is no, I'm not as lucky that there is a thesis that I can identify. And then we just, you know, we do our best value in it. And if if it is, you know, if if you are if you're right about the cheapness, then we'll buy it. I ordered the book today, the little book of Sideways Markets, and I was actually intrigued as to why you called it that, because I was assuming it's going to be called the little book of value investing, unless there's maybe another book called that. But why was it called the little book of Sideways Markets? Because Sideways Markets are possibly the most sort of, I mean, perhaps boring parts of the market? Um, That requires a much bigger explanation. Uh Um, which is fine. Um, so, okay. Um, so the if you look at the markets over a long period of time, so I'm now talking not talking about months, I'm not even talking about years. I'm talking about decades. If you look at the stock market's history um, over the last hundreds of years, more than hundred years, uh, you'll find that uh, if you look at the markets on log scale, then you find that. Most of the times, the markets were in two phases. Either they were going up, you would call bull markets, or they actually went sideways. 
and the war in the, like in the war in the, like in the sideways market. The war, if you you can basically draw a straight line, and you see the slope of that line will be flat. There will be a huge amount of volatility inside of those phase of you know, this uh, sideways markets phase, like the you know like the example that's older listeners can relate to is the market from 1966 to 1982. In 16 years, this you know basically stocks have gone nowhere. They had a four or five bull markets and four or five bear markets, and the markets have gone nowhere. And you could you can argue from a 29 19, to 1954 in the US is, was exactly the same. Exactly, exactly, and uh, and also from uh, from 1999 to uh, I forget the year. Let's say to 20. 13-ish roughly, I forget, you know, you can look at the chart, the markets were sideways. Now, the you could argue that the thesis of my book was wrong, okay, because I was arguing that we're going to have a, you know, we're, you know, we're going to have a much longer sideways markets, you know, when I wrote the book. Um, what, the reason I ended up being wrong, because I did not anticipate that we're gonna have interest rates decline so much and stay so long. You know, it's, it's at, at negative rates in some countries or at zero for so long. And that basically interrupted what would have been a sideways markets and mm-hmm. resorted kind of in a, in a, I, I don't know, like eight or nine years of bull markets, like, you know. But the, the good thing for, uh, for my publisher is that I think we are in the, bull mar- in the sideways markets again. Mm. Because the valuations are right now are so high, and uh, if you if you semi normalize them for incredibly high profit margins, uh, then uh, and your know, valuations are high, and uh, we have a huge mountain of debt, and uh, that most likely the um, the growth rate going forward for the economy is going to be lower than it was in the past, and the valuations are high. So yeah, I think more, there is very likely that we're going to be in sideways markets, you know, for another 10, 15 or long years or longer. But I, I mean, I would argue that since 2008, we haven't had a, a we haven't had a legitimate market. Everything's been juiced artificially by, as you say, declining rates and also the most extraordinary monetary stimulus. So well, it, I, would just, I would say it's yeah. like a Potemkin market, like a Potemkin village market. It's it's not it's not a real thing. Oh, I agree with 100%. I mean, the a lot of economic growth since then has completely been stimulated by low interest rates and government and, uh, increased government indebtedness. So, uh, yes. So, in terms of looking for value, uh, is it just U.S. companies, or do you look outside in the global economy, frontier markets, maybe? No, actually, we look at. Um, we own some British companies. We own some. Uh, so you are willing to own emerging markets then. <laughs> well, I, I, I would, but I hope you guys will emerge at some point. Uh, uh, distressed, distressed markets. We've just distressed lost our queens. Yeah, they, no, they, 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 the markets that exit things. Yeah. Um, no, uh, <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, uh, I'd be willing to buy stocks in the economies where uh, there's so many tests, like, like, uh, like one test would be if I could write a negative article about the leader of the country and still be willing to travel to the country, not fearing for my safety. That mm-hmm. would be one example. Uh, where there is a free market economy, though in all fairness, 
with this logic, I probably would almost own the buy. <laughs> uh, I would not own a, a single stock in almost in any economy today. Mm. No, but it, but overall, where there's a where there is a rule of law. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but there's a rule of law. So now, yeah, then I'll then I'm willing to uh, buy stocks in in those markets. I mean, the stuff that, that really concerns me right now is you look at what's happening, say, north of the border in the States, i.e. in Canada, and you look mm -hmm. at what's happened to the sequestration of people's assets, bank, bank seizures, bank freezings, for people who simply gave to a trucker's charity. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's, that looks to me a lot like socialism. I think there is a governmental overreach and um, like you could argue that what just happened with student loans in the United States, and when I when I make this point, this is not even even though I have a view on, on student loans forgiveness. Um, when the president president of the United States unilaterally spent three hundred plus billion dollars uh, without Congress approval, that is overstep of you know mm. that's. You know, so that's it's a in my mind it's not that much different for one you know for what the Canadian president did uh, of uh, you know with truckers and stuff. So, yeah, I think we start you know like global you know global democracies are becoming a little bit less democratic. Uh, yeah, and also the, the sort of the, the the government administration, if you like, or attempted administration of, of markets seems to have gone into complete. Uh, oh, well, you say overreach. It's gone into com it's completely out of control. So here in the UK, we've just had our new Prime Minister Liz Truss say she's basically going to spend between 100 and 150 billion on um, shoring up people's finances for higher energy bills, which was a self-inflicted problem anyway of the Biden administration. Um, and people, basically, I think at some point our, our currency is going to crash. And people will say it's all it's all capitalism, but it, it, none of this is capitalism. It's all crony capitalism. No, I disagree with you. I just wrote an article about this issue and the student loans in the United States, uh, because you know, like it's a slippery slope, right? You start bailing out, you know, uh, student, you know, with people with student loans, but then what about a plumber who never went to college, right? But but has a lot of mortgage debt. Well, you say, well, we, let's bail him out because the housing prices have declined. But what about what about a trucker who doesn't own a house but has a lot of credit card debt? Well, like, now you bail him out, and suddenly it never ends. It never ends. Yeah, no, that's right. No, I agree with you. Yeah. So, in terms of um, value investing in general, you have yeah. obviously you've got Warren Buffett, and he was taught by Ben Graham. That's the kind of Bible of value investing. Um, to ask a very simple, but uh, a simple question about, obviously, the, Tim asked at the beginning of the show what you class as value. And I suppose that that's what makes the difference between value investors. W why would one put money in, in one particular value firm or another, as opposed to putting it into Warren Buffett's fund? What what is being done that is different? I think every value investor brings something of their own to the table. Their their experiences, uh, their perspectives. Their you know. So I think, uh, and let's be honest, Warren Buffett is ninety something years old. So um, 
I, I want him to live forever, but that's not how the universe works. Um, the like, let me tell you why when people read Ben Graham's book, they get a wrong lesson out of this. Remember how I gave you two definitions of value investing? One is the wrong one. Well, when you read uh, Ben Graham's book, he spends a lot of time talking about you want to buy stocks, you know, the trades at this number, or this is my formula that is a very, very specific how to value stocks. Well, Ben Graham lived in a different era. He lived in a pre-computer era. He lived in an era where the markets uh, where he just by following his rules, you could just beat the market, you know, because he was competing against people who were complete speculators. Today, there's uh, so many computers that are trying to do what he did that this game has became a lot more difficult. In fact, the book that I didn't finish, that I may finish at some point, um, was going to be called The Intellectual Investor. And that was my play on the intelligence investor. Mm. And I would argue in today's world of investing, creativity becomes a lot more important because if you're just simply looking for statistically cheap stocks, you're so is competing. As you said, so is everybody else. Yeah, exactly. So then you have to identify value that does not stare you in the face. That that may be, that may That value may be may come from earnings growth. That value may come because the company has assets that, you know, uh, that uh, uh, you, you don't see it through the income statement or a balance sheet. Or that may come because companies' earnings are depressed for various reasons, either they invest in the future, et cetera. So it's uh, important to become a kind of a nuanced investor and a creative investor. In other words, not be like if a company trades at more than 10.2 10 times earnings, I don't buy the stock kind of thing. But I, I can argue, so, sorry, Paul, I can answer your question as to why you wouldn't use Buffett uh, as over another early funds because um, if you go with Buffett now, it, it, the Berkshire Hathaway is so huge, you basically need mega cap stocks just to move the needle. Buffett Absolutely. can't buy small or mid cap stocks full stop. That that's the reason that I would suggest. That oh was, no, that's 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 one. Of, I agree with you. That's one of the reasons. And also, you know, what's the you know what's his, what's his runway? Yeah, no, I agree with you hundred percent. And you you were saying in the book as well about when you love what you do, you do it because you want to be an artist. You have your soul in the game of what you're actually trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And I think if I'm correct in saying that you, you said that if you got to a certain size where you wouldn't be able to f perform well for your investors, then you'd prefer to not take more money over Absolutely. the performance yeah. of your fund, which is this yes. sort of thing I think Tim would do as well without putting words in his mouth. No, uh, for sure, for sure. Um, and that, But that really shows that, that um, you're focused on your clients and getting the best possible result as opposed to just trying to become a bigger fund. Oh, absolutely! No, absolutely. I, in all fairness, like if I maybe managed two or three times more money, my life would not change a bit. Like it's just it really makes it no difference for me. And I don't wake up in the morning and think about, oh, how I'm going to grow my firm. That's like when we were when we were little. That you know that 
that's something I had to do just to survive. But at this point in time, that you know, that's you know, that's a kind of it's a it's a there's A, B, C, and D before I even think about that. Well, I remember in the book you cite the example of the guy who I think was a billionaire. Yeah. But he basically never saw his children. And you say, well, I, I would rather spend quality time with my family so I could live with being a center millionaire and, you know, and have a, have a more rounded life. No, I think that's right. Because you, everything I do to grow the firm or, you know, or anything I do, period, you know, there's a cost to that. And, and the biggest cost for me is actually my time. And the time is taken away from playing chess with my daughter or, you know, doing something else. And uh, with my kids and my wife. And so, therefore, uh, you know, like the bar is so much higher for me because now whatever new thing I do is conflict, you know, is a, has to come at the expense of my family. And I tell you this, like one of the most important things in my life is, was, a, was a realization of scarcity or things are finite. Like, you know, and we can go both way, either way. Um, I realized that my 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 uh, oldest daughter, which is my middle child, she's 16, uh, Hannah, and she is 11th grade. And if you think about it, I only have maybe 400 something days of school left with her. So in, you know, in 400 something days, she'll be driving her, you know, herself to college, you know. So every time when I wake up in the morning and I have to drive actually her and her sister to school, I look at that as a gift because I realize that there will be time when I won't be driving her to school. There will be time when we won't be having this conversation. And by the way, this time is only in 400 days. And there's, 400 quite, a moving, there's quite a moving chapter which is deals with what if this is the last time I ever do this? Yes, yeah. And uh, that's right because every single day we're doing something for the last time and we don't appreciate it. And um, once we start looking at life from this perspective, we'll, like what my, uh, what my father would call, like we, we inhale life more, we appreciate it more. And, uh, you know, and we would uh, pay less attention to material things. There was another chapter where I talk about set your egg timer to six months. And uh, this, there's this story, like there's this wonderful book by... Uh, Randy Pausch. And Randy was a, uh, he was a, a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. And I think in 2007 and 2008, 2007, he gave this, uh, what's called last lecture. And at Carnegie Mellon, they had usually, we had teachers who were about to retire, were going to give their last lecture and share the, this was their wisdom with them, with students. Well, when Randy gave his last lecture in 2007, he was 44, 45 years old. And uh, he was in the perfect shape, in a sense, he did like 30 push-ups on stage, uh, except he had a, he had a cancer, um, he had a pancreatic cancer that progresses slowly, then it kills you very fast. And um, Randy, like by the way, if you listen to this podcast after you're done with this, before you go and buy my book, buy Randy Pasha's book, you know, the last lecture. You'll thank everyone for this. Um, it's phenomenal, or, or even better, or or watch his YouTube video. You know, it's called the last lecture. It's it's phenomenal. It's a heartbreaking, and there's so many uh, stories there in it. But there is one story that really really touched me. So they, 
before he died, Randy published a book called Last Lecture. And in this book, he told the story which really stuck with me. And the story was uh, Randy bought a convertible. Uh, and this is before he was married. And he came to his sister's house to pick up uh, his uh, niece and nephew to take him to amusement park. And his sister sees that he just has this brand new convertible car, tells her kids, you guys have to be careful because Uncle Randy has this new car. He gets, While, a, kind of so, he gets a kind of soda, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, it, it is, yes. And then Randy slowly, without saying anything, opens a can of Coke and looking at his sister, just pours it on the back seat of his car. And that was a, such a, and, and he basically tells his sister, this is just an automobile. This is just a thing. It doesn't really matter. But what really was shocking to me is this. Like, like now, so this is when he wrote the story. Um, this is what I read in the book. But I want to I wanna give you this perspective. So this happened, let's say, in 2005. Today, Randy passed away in 2008. Um, and so where is his car today? This car, this convertible, is probably somewhere in the junkyard. Yeah. It doesn't even matter if it had dents, if it had a dirty backseat or whatever. It's irrelevant. It's a thing. Okay, and I think once you start looking at the things, so, and, and the, the, the irony of this, I was telling this story to my brother while, you know, while we were flying in Europe. And before I went to Europe, I was telling my wife how this new car that I have that she's driving, she needs to park very far away from other <laughs> yes, cars. the Tesla, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I caught myself that that is a, such a, like that, that gave me such an important perspective. I remember after after I told this story to my to my brother, it kind of made me made me myself rethink this. And I texted my wife and said, "I don't care where you park the car, it's a thing." So, it's just a lot of times we spend so much energy worrying about things, worrying about you know about the color of our house or whatever, and. And when and we only have a finite amount of energy, so the energy we focus uh, we focus on things is basically the energy stolen from relationships, other things. So I would argue by appreciating that you know, appreciating that the things are things, and then really, what difference is going to be? You know, what's going to happen to our car we're driving today? Because at some point we're going to junk it, or is we going to sell it, or whatever. But the relationship we have today are so much more important than that. Yeah. I mean, in a small way, it reminds me of when uh, my wife is Slovakian and when she came over to this country and she was driving my car for the first time before we were married and she was really worried that she was going to damage it. And she was getting used to driving on the other side of the road and she was like really nervous that something would happen to the car. And I was like, well, it's just a car. I don't care about the car. I care about you. If something happens to you, I have a problem. If you scratch the car... I don't care. It's just a piece of metal, and yeah. you know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Stuff doesn't matter. And and um, it was around that time that I and I thought a bit more about that, and I realised that when we start to fall into the trap of always wanting the best and the greatest in terms of new technology, that I thought of an idea of whatever phone you've got, um, you should package it up and put it back in its box 
send it to yourself if you could get somebody to <laughs> s- get somebody to send it to you like in a month's time but before you get it you read everything that's been written about that particular phone or whatever before you get it and then you get that same sort of oh actually you know that that build up until you get it and then you get this new phone and it's like oh there it there it is you know when when you read about it and you anticipate technology in that way and you think it's going to be great when it arrives it's there's ne- it's never as brilliant as you think it's going to be anyway no, you're right and it's all marketing it could, be, it could be like jeans have it stonewashed and like covered in <laughs> covered in you know dents and bruises and smears yeah it's it's um it's the power of marketing and it's um i think you, you know soul in the game when i read it i it was so personal that i almost felt, felt i was intruding in some ways by re- reading it and I, I mean that as a compliment, um, but I also mean it because it was clearly written for your children as well. And, uh, you know, I have two children and I try to spend as much time as I can with them and not use the excuse of giving them technology, which, which of course they use and they love and trying to, to sort of make sure that we still connect as a family and we talk um, we don't have gadgets at the table and it's not every night that somebody's on an iPad, somebody's got their headphones on, someone's watching a film separately. We try to do things together. We try to play cards and we try to play chess or, or you know, board games or whatever it might be. We do try. We don't always succeed, but we try. But um, but I, I also really felt for the the part in the books where well right at the beginning you say you say to your kids you don't read my emails so i've had to write this book and i completely understand that as well because i know all the all the knowledge that i'm trying to impart to my children that i feel is really important that they're not going to really listen to i'm hoping that that um you know one day i can sort of create a book or something that i can give to them say look just read this then and that's what you've done and um uh jim rogers the the the, the of the quantum fund fame um uh, the soros fund um wrote a book called a gift to my children i don't know if you've read that but it's i haven't read this one no 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 so i i um it felt very similar in well it, it very different styles but it, the same intention in both of those books to pass on information which i thought was lovely um but Thank uh, you. but um but yeah i i i think with um also uh, you know people who don't have children it's not it's not that it's not relevant it's um it's it's about life and your life has been a massive contrast going from russia to the united states couldn't have been a bigger one really going as you said at the top of the show going from a very cold climate into a warm one and um all the all the differences when you were describing how you tasted coke for the first time and you drank a lot of it and then realized it probably wasn't a good idea and you should probably stop um you, you that's totally understandable but it's it's also it, it, you have that inbuilt in your memory which therefore i think potentially is why you treasure the time that you have in a in a in a country where you're able to to thrive and, and flourish and use your skills and, and creativity to live your life. Well, you, you mentioned this story about Coke. And to me, that is actually the Coke less is a, is a, is a lesson of scarcity. How scarcity, there's value in this. Okay, like in Russia, there was maybe too much scarcity because I had, a, like I think I had a Coke once in the first 18 years of my life. 
Okay, you can argue maybe that's too, maybe that's too little, maybe that's too much scarcity. But then when I come to United States, I have this realization that you can buy Coke in gallons, and you can drink it as much as you want because it's so cheap. And if you go to a restaurant, they have, they give you free refills of Coke. So I remember, like I was 21 or 22, and I wasn't I was in a restaurant, and I had a, my third refill of Coke. And by the way, at this point in my life, I already made up for all the lack of consumption, you know, in Russia. They just just living in the United States for a few years. So how much coke I had? But anyway, I'm ordering my third refill, and I feel, I don't feel the taste. I feel like I'm drinking water, because when you drink coke for a few gallons a day every single day, well, maybe not a few gallons, but a lot of coke every single day, you stop tasting it. You start appreciating it. You, you start taking it for granted. You start appreciating it. So at that point in my life, I said, I'm going to drink Coke just a few times a year. Like, And I think I said at the time, I said, when I go to movie theaters, which at the time I went just a few times a year. And I tell you this, and that's what I do to this point. When I go to the movie theater and I drink Coke, I appreciate every single sip. So in all the just like having too little in Russia, I would argue, you know, was stressful for my parents, you know, because it was difficult to find the food. I would argue having having abundance is not necessarily a good thing either, unless we almost impose some kind of artificial um, um, uh, boundaries, because otherwise we won't appreciate things, you know, just like, the, you know, in a, we, were, we were over-consume as well. Um, but in a, from a business perspective, I would argue that having scarcity is important as well. If um, I read a story about Segway, the the you know the, um, the, yeah. uh, the the company that makes the Segways, that when the technology came out, it was revolutionary, because be able to balance on two wheels and you know be you know transport people from place A to B to place B on two wheels, basically almost like on one wheel, right? That was a revolution at the time, and that company could get, got so much investment that they really never had to figure out how to make money. So they they drowned they, in capital. They drowned in, exactly, and um, they were never really figured out product market fit. I would argue if they had a lot less capital, they would. Um, and that's so. There's a there is a. Like having too much capital is bad. Having too little, you know, too little capital is, you know, is bad either. So there is a, some kind of middle ground. And by the way, I do the same thing when I run my firm. Like I want to make sure that I spend, you know, we do have budgets so we don't overspend money on, you know, and uh, so we are thoughtful about this. And I always, and by the way, when I parent my kids, I do the same thing. I, uh, my kid, you know, like, like uh, let me use an example of my 16-year-old daughter. She has, you know, she, you know, she has a weekly allowance, and that weekly allowance is always a little bit less than she needs. Well, or what she thinks she needs. So, and that makes her make choices in life. You know, is she going to go to lunch uh, twice a week with her friends or once a week? When she goes to lunch, is she's going to buy expensive, you know, meal or not expensive meal? And I think that's very, very important to instill it in your kids because. If they like the worst thing I can do is just 
kind of shower them with money and not appreciate that there is you know, scarcity and the value of money, etc. I'm going to lob I'm going to lob a grenade into the the the, the swimming pool now and, and say that one of the things that I'm get very wary about is when someone someone refers me to um, a book or to writing that's very very good by someone who's a successful investor. I would humbly submit that the universe of people who can write really engagingly and manage money really well is vanishingly small. So it's it's that there are very few people who can do that. I'm not saying you're not one of them, but I'm saying that that community is extremely small because a lot of people who write well are lousy investors. I don't know. D- like, discuss. Uh, so, okay. So, <laughs> so, what, what, so what's, what's your question? <laughs> I'm just saying. I just. I'm just saying. I think. I. I think what what you represent is is an extremely small subset of the investing community yeah I, I i can see from the outside that you know tim price is a brilliant writer he's written books and loves the english language and is a value investor vitaly katzenelson you're the same it's you you you're primarily a writer who then discovered value investing and it's that's just so rare because normally the people that write very well in terms of economics and stories that we read, say on Bloomberg television, or 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 not to put them down, but they're not, they're not they're not actually writing to inform. They are writing to they're writing to to get an audience. Yeah, they're writing for what they think people need to hear, rather than the truth. And I think the truth about how markets work and and the truth about value investing is very different to the day-to-day um, economic numbers that come out and how they're analyzed by the markets and how they're very eloquently explained by certain economists to tell you where the markets are going to go. And they sound fantastic because I've worked with a lot of them and they're good people. They're not, they're not bad people at all. They're just, what they're trying to, to uh, convey is just has no relevance to, to real investing it's it's um it's storytelling um and it's and it's um i guess in that form and you've got to be a good writer to be able to be a good storyteller in that regard so i think there's a difference between a good storyteller that that can make something up out of nothing and make a story out of today's news and do it very skillfully and somebody who's a storyteller who can actually get to the bottom of what life is all about and what the markets are all about those are two very different things and those those things you've done um well, well thank you thank you both i would challenge you on one thing and just chronologically I was an investor for probably seven, eight years before I started writing. So, so I was an investor first. Right. But I would argue. But let me, let me, but let me, let me just make these two points, which actually could, could, I recently could, realized. Could I just ask very quickly? When you yeah. wrote, when you asked the FT to publish your your work, was that when you were investing? Then I thought that. Oh yeah, was, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, I was, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, this was a 2005, 2006. At okay. this point, I mean, I've been investing. I've been in the investment industry since '95. Been okay. working you know, in the investment profession since '97. Uh, so I was doing it for a while at this point, you know. Um, but like I'll tell you two things. So the writing 
and been a parent are two of the most important things that happened to me as an individual. Because they both of them have have provided an incredible stimulation for my growth as an, an individual. So writing because, and basically for the same reason actually, believe it or not, writing basically made me think about topics and stay in them much longer than I would have otherwise. And so did parenting because parenting basically, when I parent my kids, I try to teach them. And when I do this, I learn. Um, and uh, Leonard Bernstein had this saying, I, I learn when I teach, I teach when I learn. And I think that's what both of them do for me. That's, mm. And, uh, and uh, I think both added a whole bunch of IQ points to me, and I needed plenty of those. So I'm very thankful to both teaching and parenting, because, I mean, uh, writing and parenting, because the extra IQ points they gave me, I desperately needed them, so that was good. Uh, but that's it, yeah, so I, but today I, I used to be embarrassed, like when I used, somebody used to say, oh, you're, yeah, like, are you an investor and a writer? And I would say, no, I'm an investor, but I also write. Today, I'm not, you know, kind of, I realize I'm not embarrassed for, you know, for writing anymore. You know, I, uh, well, they, need, I, they, need, they needn't be mutually exclusive. That's to, exactly right. To, to, yeah, to, to go, right. to go back to my earlier, an earlier question. Uh, I, I do think there's, there's something in this, this whole comparison between value investing and, and sort of stoicism mm. to the extent that I, I think, I, I mean, I, I aspire to sort of stoic mm-hmm. stuff, but it's extraordinarily difficult to, to, pra- to practice. And I think it's similar in, I'm not trying to make a, a, trying to crowbar a square argument into a round hole, but it, that, I, I think you you are either a born born a value investor or not. I don't think you can just take to it later. It's it's something that you either get immediately or never. And so I would define say growth or growth is more akin to momentum, which is for as long as the trend lasts, it's great. But you get you get almost instant gratification as a growth investor. Whereas from from bitter personal experience, value investing takes an awful lot of time. And and you will lose clients along the way who are impatient for returns. So that way, you need to be stoic just to survive the process. Oh, I agree with you, and I I would argue that there is a lot of similarity between stoicism and value investing in this regard. In stoic philosophy, there is this concept of the dichotomy of control. And Epictetus, who is a founder of you know one of the founders of stoic philosophy. He has this, you know, he basically explains the dichotomy of control in these terms. And it's, it sounds extremely simplistic. There are certain things that are up to us, certain things aren't. What you discover, the things that are up to you are very few of them. It's just basically, it's your values, it's your behavior. Uh, nothing, and very little. That's it. That's basically almost, almost it. Now, what's not up to you is everything else. It's uh, it's not up to you if uh, if when you drive to work, uh, you know you hit every red light you know there is out there, or it's not up to you if the uh, clerk at the store is rude to you. Completely not up to you. So what is up to you? How you react to this? Mm-hmm. Now, let me draw. Uh, let me like let me let me make a comparison uh, with the sport, and then I'll, that's gonna you, you'll see this clearly with value investing. If you want to become a great tennis player, or if you want to win a match, what's not up to you if when you play this match, you're going to win or not. It's not. 
but it's what up to you how uh, how well you were preparing for this match. If you did deliberate practice, if you took lessons, you know, all this different stuff you do to prepare for the match, that's what's up to you. What's not you, up to you? And can you play the next shot? without being influenced by what's just happened before, which is... Sure, and that's a psychology, yes. Yeah. That's, a, that's a psychology, and yes, absolutely. But what's not, not, not up to you if you're going to succeed or fail in this. It's completely... Because there's a lot of randomness in life. And Tim, you see where I'm going with that to value investing, right? Because what's up to you is an well, there's, value there's, investor. There's a, there's a process and an outcome, but you can only control the process. Exactly. That's exactly where I'm going with that. And... What's even more important, once you recognize this, and you realize that you have very little, very little uh, control of the outcome, that is incredibly, incredibly liberating. Because now you just focus on things you can control and, and you stop worrying about things you don't control. And, that, and that's such a, such a useful bit of advice for pretty much every facet of life. Which I think this this got turned into the Serenity Prayer, which then became part of the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, prayer, which is you know God grant me the wisdom to you know to know what's important and to know what isn't important and to be able to know the difference between the two things I could control and things I can't control. And I suspect most people barely think about the fact that so much of what affects them mentally is completely out of their hands. Absolutely, no, that's exactly right. And the book Fall by Randomness by, I know Taleb is obviously somebody who you enjoy the work of. I think that was, that was for me, was a was an excellent work to explain the randomness of the markets and, and how it explains certain successes or how much random chance can play in your overall success um, and how we don't really give it very much thought, but it's, uh, it is incredibly important. But that doesn't mean that you can't work hard as well, because as they say, the harder you work, the luckier you become. When I read this book, when I read uh, Talib's book, it probably had, that book actually was given to me on my 30th birthday. I remember, and it had a, such a huge impact on me that I reached out to him. And that was before he was famous. And uh, I, I said, I'll be in New York, would love to meet you. And we actually, you know, we met in New York, went out oh, cool. for a walk in the, uh, in the, in the, in the Bryan's Park. And uh, th that recognized that, you know, how much randomness impacts everything and that you can't, there is absolutely nothing you can do about this. And also recognized that certain, certain environments have more randomness than others. And in certain environments, it has a greater magnitude than others, right? Like you, like you want to have as little randomness in a plane, okay? <laughs> because uh, that you know, in that environment, that randomness could be very dangerous. And this is why there are so many regulations and so many rules of how engine has to be serviced, how the plane every so many hours has to be serviced, different things. Because what they try to do is try to remove randomness from, you know, from plane, you know, and that's why so few planes, you know, follow the sky, right? You know, it's, and if you think about trains, uh, they have fewer checks, like, you know, they have a, there's less maintenance on, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just right now guessing, but I would, I would think there's less maintenance when it comes to trains because the impact of randomness, you know, is less lethal 
I wouldn't, you know, would argue. So anyway, so let's see. Let's see. Talib's books are been extremely important to me. In fact, the the name of the book, Soul in a Game, was a trigger when uh, I wrote this essay called Soul in a Game, and that essay came from the name of this uh, from reading his book, uh, Skin in the Game. And in that book, there was a chapter called Soul in a Game. And when I read the chapter again, Nassim has this impact on me. It had a very profound impact on me. And I ended up expanding you know, on the topic a lot more. Yeah, I, re- I remember that part of his book. Uh, I really enjoyed Anti-Fragile. I thought that was a fantastic yeah. piece of work. Um, but um, yeah, because Skin in the Game now has become a phrase that so many people know from Taleb. Absolutely. And and it's I could see the natural extension to soul in the game, which is obviously one step further. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I really enjoy his work. And, and I, I remember um, sitting in a green room at CNBC when the stock market had gone down a lot. And um, I'm, I'm a technical analyst, so I'm, neither, I'm not a value investor. Um, but I, I obviously respect it, and I think I'm interested, always interested to learn more about the markets um, in whatever field, whether it's the one I, I follow or somebody else's. And I was, I was sitting in the green room, and the, the market had fallen a lot. And these, these, uh, this uh, analyst came in, and he was a bond trader, and obviously bonds had gone up a lot. And he thought I was an equity trader so he and he was i'll never forget because i just read full by randomness and he said um he said oh oh oh, you must be uh you must be an equity person then and well you know i'm a bond person so you know i'm loving these markets at the moment and i was like well actually i'm neither because i'm a technical analyst and i don't care whether the markets go up or down but it was at that point that the the full by randomness element really hit home because it was like well this guy thinks he's so good because he's a bond trader but the bond outcome is completely random to your ability now you might be a fantastic bond trader but that's irrelevant to the underlying markets and i think that's what people who've been in the markets a long time understand that that everything is on a really big cycle and if you're getting excited because things are going well you've got to be careful that it's not just because you're you're not absolutely brilliant. It's because the, the underlying circumstances are favoring your your strategy. And, and that might be your strategy. That's fair enough. Well, I, 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 just noticed, I just noticed that Bill Gross of PIMCO, has been, uh, formerly of PIMCO, has been, uh, been very quiet lately. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost yeah, right. as if he's not, not, not the right. most, say, yeah. genius bond trader in the world. <laughs> exactly. It's like, at least if you know that an element of your success or what's going on could be random and you're looking out for it you're much better informed than somebody who thinks that that it's it's all you as it were which is what which is what i got from it paul it's a great point i was just thinking for a second tim just think about how much how bill gross basically built his career on u.s treasury going from i don't know 15 percent in the zero yeah to zero (laughs) and he has built a multi probably multi-trillion dollar firm just based on that. And uh, it's quite incredible. Actually, I remember a story which is slightly changing the topic, but I I remember Fortune or Forbes had this profile of Bill Gross. And this is, was a long, long time ago. I maybe started my career 
like maybe I was maybe early 2000s or something. I forget when it was. And I remember reading this profile and they were talking about how Bill Gross eats fresh blueberries every single day because it helps his memory. And I was thinking about it. Like, I'm like, this is so awesome. I love blueberries. I would love to eat them every day. To bet I can't afford it. And I tell you this, and this is not me bragging. You'll see why. Because the day I realized I'm actually arrived when I can go to grocery store and buy fresh blueberries <laughs> and not care about how much it costs. Just right. put it in perspective because nobody has a sympathy for this uh, investment guy in Denver. But I, like, it's in the, in the context, fresh blueberries in uh, at grocery store cost as much as a you know, at Frappuccino and Starbucks. So it's, you know, but to me, that was something I would not allow myself to buy uh, on a daily basis. And I was in Bill Gross fault, you know, for, his richness fault to me, not because whatever yachts he had on houses he had, but because he could afford to eat fresh blueberries every day. Anyway, so <laughs> that's my Bill Gross story. And that's, that's about self-improvement as well, which um, I think is, uh, is, is something that, when I read Soul in the Game, I was thinking, this is great because I'm going to learn, I'm going to read something that will improve me as a person, hopefully. Or I, I would try to get something that in, improves me as a person. Plus, I will learn no, about... No, no book could possibly do that. No, <laughs> yeah. no book that good. <laughs> yeah, I'm a lost cause, I know. But Well, I've started taking cold showers, by the way, which I was, which was part of the... That's separate part... topic altogether. We should draw a discreet veil over, I think. <laughs> well, it's in, it's in the book. It's in the, sto the stoicism. And you were saying that that's part of your process. And uh, you enjoy hot showers far more when you've had a cold shower. It's all about, it's all about supply, isn't Contrast. it? Contrast. It's about contrast, absolutely, and um, you know it's it's interesting that the, that these things that can that sometimes uh, d deprive you um, make you stronger as well. I mean, I was I was reading the benefits of having a cold shower. Apparently, very good for your immune system, and and it reminded me of um, and so this is a, the reason why I think think these things you know spark such interesting topics. I was watching a a program about the the countries where they have the best diets and at the top was Iceland so Iceland had the best diets and um, you know fresh fish obviously you'd expect that and the people lived the longest so they were looking at the various countries of who lives the longest Italy was one which was quite interesting and but Iceland was at the top and um, having kids I, I don't suppose you would have come across this but there's a, a program called lazy town and it's about this this fit guy who goes around you know trying to get people to exercise and all that now the guy in this kids program called lazy town is obviously a very buff guy who's um uh you know very, very fit turns cold out shower, he, cold shower pool turns out that he's icelandic and he appeared on this program that was talking about people who live a long a long time and he was in his 60s when he was doing the show, which was just phenomenal because he looked like he was in his 20s. And he attributed his, well, he was talking about his diet, but actually when they were interviewing him on the program, he was in the snow having an ice bath. And I was thinking, this is incredible. There must be something, that's something that they're not really factoring into. You know, they're looking at their diet, so they're just 
looking at that one metric. But actually, they're not looking at the other things that he does, which to most people would sound absolutely crazy and they would never do it. But that maybe may maybe it gives a super boost to your immune system. Well, that's that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I thought that was that thought that was very interesting. And it's in it's in the book, which is why I decided to. I thought you've got to try these things. Yeah, it's kind of funny. The book is endorsed by Wim Hof, the Iceman. And I actually ended up spending uh, about a month ago, spending a few hours with Wim Hof in, uh, in the Netherlands. And uh, I haven't done uh, the ice ice bath yet, mm. but I'm planning to do it in the next couple of weeks. And we're wow. going to do it at home. We're just going to buy literally guy bags of ice and just go do it in the bathtub. And at some point, I'm actually you know, I'm going to attend one of the Wim's uh, because this uh, retreats. Uh, where people do crazy stuff, you know, with ice, you know, in the cold, you know, so I'm going to do this at some point. Um, no, but you, you, you guys are absolutely right. And I think one thing it does also, it's a, it decreases inflammation in your, in your body. So that's, that's another benefit of that. So, um, you're always writing, you write on a daily basis. Do, do mm. you always, is it always financial or are you look, do you, do you write, uh, any narrative? Uh, do you write poems or stories or anything like that? Um, no. So the writing is, uh, if you think about it, I write on three topics. Investing, so let's call it financial, life, and classical music. And life is like, if you think about my book, that's a, most of it is a life book. You know, uh, um, no, so every single day I write about, uh, lately I've been writing about three hours a day. I've been getting up at four, but going to sleep much earlier. Uh, because I'm working on an interesting topic, uh, but usually write about two hours a day, and uh, whatever topic is interesting to you know is interesting to me at the time. That's what I write about. A few times a year, I have to write letters to IMA clients, and I learned how to love like even though like it's, because I have to do this. Usually uh, there is a negative connotation to it, but I learned how to uh, turn this into an, an enjoyment. Like I choose to do this now. So and uh, and I saw, uh, but I write about you know all these different topics. What interests me? Basically, I only write. I'm at a point in my life where I only do things, try to do as many things as possible that are interesting to me, that are stimulating to me, and um, things that are not interesting to me or don't stimulate my thinking, I try to outsource. Uh, and luckily, I have a lot of skillful people at IMA, so I can do that. I don't know why, but one one part of the book that I remember so well, and it, it sort of made me... Um, I, I was so pleased with the reaction that, with the company that you worked for, but when, when you managed to fry the servers because you took out... <laughs> the graphics card i really felt for you there i really did i was like oh my god that must have been awful and i just still oh feel that well it's a it's a like in a feeling this stupid in hindsight that actually i would do this so this, the story was i was working so this investment firm hired me because of my computer skills but when i say computers it was really hardware and the software skills not hardware skills but it's a small firm so i had to do different things and at some point they wanted me to replace a video card and this is 1994 95 i'm 21 22 years old or something you know and uh, and i and i knew that i may be taking the risk 
kind of trying to replace a video. So what happened was to do this, I would have to get everyone off network. So you know, which is difficult. I would have to go to eight or nine people asking to do this. And I, you know, and so I decided like, you know what, I'm gonna do a good thing. I'm not gonna disrupt, you know, the work. I'm just gonna insert the card while the server is running. And I did this and everything stopped working. And I realized I fried the server. And in the hindsight, it looks like such an idiotic thing to do. But I was young, I guess. Let me just. And But the best part about the story is that the reaction from the two company founders, one was uh, Bill Ramick, that was uh, Joe Picarur. And uh, uh, Joe basically you know, tried to find a consultant who would be able to build us a new server, uh, restore the back, you know, restore the software and the backup. And and Bill was just trying to make me feel less bad. You know, and neither one, you know, you know, neither one, you know, tried to belittle me or make me feel horrible because my face said everything. I felt horrible already. So what was the point? But but that reaction really had a huge impact on me because today I'm a CEO of a company and I have a lot of people and you know, at some point they'll do something less than smart. And it's my job to have empathy and to understand that even smart people will do dumb things. And, uh, and I'm and, guessing you're uh, not responsible for the IT department anymore. No, 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 not. Well, I learned though. I am. Yeah, but no, no. Um, and I think that, that that was a very, very important lesson. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it because of the response. I thought it was that was brilliant. What a what lovely human beings to treat you like that. And that's um that's something that we should always remember. Like because once it's done, it's done. There's nothing you can do about it. It's one of those things where I would always say you have to look at the intention. There was no intention to cause this problem. It was purely an accident. And if you and, if you done it maliciously, yeah, of course they'd be angry and they'd fire you. But you didn't. You did it. It was an accident. You did it in good faith. You didn't want to get everybody off the server. But how they treated it, they they used it as an opportunity to upgrade the system. And they and also showed they how how you how you treat staff. You just say okay, yeah. you know, and you become a, a more loyal employer, employee. Absolutely. Sorry, because of that. And and, and you're absolutely uh, Paul. You're absolutely right. And there are a couple more things. Number one, this was over 20 years ago, and uh, Bill passed away maybe five years ago, and we were, you know, had very re good relationship until his death. And Joe and I, Joe had been to my house two months ago. So just think about how, like he could have chewed me out and he would have felt good in a sense in that moment, right? Because I'm sure all this anger he had or all the frustration he had, he could have channeled towards me and it would have done absolutely nothing except he would have lost me as a friend and he would have lost me as an employee at some point. And this way he actually had a huge net positive impact on me, which, and and now my job is to pay it forward, is to, to keep doing, you know, keep teaching other people what he taught me with that behavior. Sorry, sorry to, to interrupt you. Yeah, no, no, you, you, weren't, you weren't interrupting at all. There must have been some cross on the line. Usually at the end of the podcast, we, we um, like to share what we call media picks. But just before we do that, I was going to ask a question. You said you, you might be writing another book. And what, what was that book about? And what sort of 
process how far in the process are you for that <laughs> that's an interesting story so like i almost have to story give tell you a story of three or four books this is just to tell you a story of that book so so i told you about active value investing and when i was writing that that book um so what happened was this in 2005 i think or 2006 2005 I had this idea for the book. I wrote this article for the Financial Times, and I realized there was and there was a kernel of an idea in this article. So I contacted the publisher Wiley and I said, "I have this book idea." They said, "Well, write us an outline," and I did. And they said, "Yeah, let's do a book." And when I was thinking about writing that book, I was thinking it's going to be I don't know, 80 pages or something, or 100 pages. And they said, "No, no, the book has to be I forget how much, but it's like 200 something pages." And I was so threatened and intimidated by, and, and, uh, and Tim, you could probably, I don't know if you can relate to this, that I have to come up with so many words and so many pages that every single thought that came to me, I put it on the page. So about, like imagine that I've been working on this for a year and I send a rough draft to my, to my editor at Wiley. And maybe two weeks later, I get the email from her, which basically says, Vitaly, this book is unpublishable. Like, like this, this was like one of the most depressing days of that decade for me, because like a year of my work and basically it's completely, like I felt completely wasted. And um, and uh, she, but the good thing is she told me what to do. She said write out an outline, and just do a lot of copy, cut and paste, and through cut and paste you're going to build a book and, and you're going to take out all the fat that I created because I ended up writing like hundred something thousand words instead of 80 thousand. So anyway, I did this and, uh, yeah, and I had a book and, um, then the little book was much easier because I was just trimming things. Okay. So that's fine. Then I was working what would have been my third book, uh, 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 the the intellectual investor, and that book I was literally writing for me because I wanted to explore those concepts and to learn them. So there was no like at this point in my life I felt like I already published two books, so I didn't have anything to prove, and this was really just kind of my exploration of what is it what, what is it going to take to be a better investor, and that you know, and here's the thing, I didn't have a, I did not contact the publisher, I didn't have a deadline, I just Every day I just wrote. That, that was it. And I think I, I worked on it maybe for a year. And then I took six months off because I think I got into another, like, you know, uh, working on some other ASA or something. And then uh, six months later, I opened that Word document and started to reread what I wrote. And though individual chapters, individual sections had some, some good insights, overall, that book was unpublishable. Now, this is the key insight. Um, because that was just an exploration for me, because I didn't have a deadline, because I just wanted to learn. I cannot tell you how that day was for me just another day. It was not the worst day of that year or whatever. I was like, oh, okay, so it's not there yet. And I just moved on. So the difference in reaction is that uh, how I framed it. Like the first book I had, because I had deadlines, I felt like I had to do this. And therefore, 
when I failed, and I use it in quotes, I, I was incredibly miserable. I was really, really depressed. With, the, with that, I was an intellectual investor because my, 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 the purpose of the book was for me to learn. When I failed, I just, I basically just had a, like the impact on me was, there was no impact. I just realized, well, I have to go back and improve it. And that's, so that's, you know, that's it. That's, you know, sorry, that's, so that book right now, I, it's sitting there as a draft. And uh, the topic now seems a little bit less interesting to me, but I, because I'm just, um, I'm, the irony of this is that I'm still working on the Soul in a Game book. And uh, in, in, in this sense, I just, there's there's so many there's so many ideas that I just did not, but so and I talk about this all in the game. What happened was, after the last chapter of the book was finished, I still like six months later I was still working on the book, or eight months later, and I just could not let it go. And I t- in, in in the book I tell the story of uh, uh, of this uh, French impressionist Degas, who was such a perfectionist that he would paint the painting and he would sell it. And then he would vi- visit somebody's house and see his painting and look at it intensely for 30 minutes and then ask if he could borrow the painting so he could improve it <laughs> and he would ruin it in the process. And I realized that I kind of had this this issue because it seems like everything I would do to the book at that at some, after a certain point, Every single touch, you know, every single time I touch the book, I probably make it worse, not better. So to let it go, I basically told myself, I'm just going to keep writing. Uh, So I really just can't stop writing this book. So I already wrote four chapters. By the way, if you're listening to this uh, podcast, if you go and you buy the book, you go to soulinthegame.net, and there will be instructions there how you can get those free chapters for those four chapters I wrote absolutely free. And I'm working on the next chapter already that's on page 10 already or 9 or 10 that I'll add to that at some point. The point is I'm it's a, it's a really it's an exploration of life. And it's I keep learning and I keep exploring new concepts and that's why I keep writing. Uh, so yes, I'm still working on selling a game future you know, next chapters I guess. Brilliant. Well, uh, Tim, did you have any more questions before we? No, I'm I'm, I'm done on I'm oh, done on uh, I'm fantastic. done on this for the moment. Fantastic. Well, um, Vitaly, we we like to um, have a what we call a media picks round, which is pretty much just sharing any book or film or anything that we found that is either absolutely fantastic or really bad and you should avoid. So, or, or just plain bland. Do you have one, Tim? I'll, yeah, I'll let uh, Vitaly have another few minutes to, to ponder his choice. So mine is a film I saw at the weekend, um, last weekend. It's a film I've seen, I saw it when it came out in the, the cinema. It's called Son of Rambo, R-A-M-B-O-W. <laughs> what? And it's, <laughs> right. it's, I think it was probably changed to Rambo with a W for copyright reasons, oh. I, I imagine. <laughs> right. And, it's not exactly basic- totally different though, is it? It's it's not well. I, th- I think most people would probably work out what the uh, what the connection is. Yeah. And as a sort of as a side topic, um, I'm not sure I realised at the time, but but um, the director of this film is a guy called Garth Jennings, 
And he is the son of the MD at Ansbacher, which is a company I used to work for in the early 2000s. So there is a very, very tenuous sort of personal connection to this one. But basically, Son of Rambo is is quite a quite wonderful film. It's a family film. And it's about um, two kids, um, one, one of whom is completely obsessed with the film Rambo First Blood. So it's set in basically the early 80s. And it's just a, a wonderful, whimsical um, comedy about about a very two very well one particular boy very very creative um, school is kind of a, a bit of a hit and miss but they they, they just they just make a, their, their own version of Rambo and they're only about twelve or something and it's it is just a a sheer delight to watch from beginning to end I cannot recommend it highly enough and oh, it's fantastic. it's a charming oh. a charming wonderful comedy. Well, I'm you know what I'm gonna do I'm uh, I'm gonna try to make this speak very culturally relevant to you guys because I assume you're both in Britain, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you, you will see what I mean by this. It's going to be Clarkson's Farm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My kids love it. And uh, Jeremy Clarkson, you know, and, uh, and I'd say, I thought we, we watched it during the pandemic. Yeah. And it was a, such a wonderful series because it's I could see myself Find like you know, like a, a city slicker finding myself on the farm and knowing nothing about it, and completely fail at that. And I think yeah, and uh, I watched it with my whole family, with my kids, and we just absolutely loved it because we learned so much about farming. And from a perspective of somebody who knows very little about farming, is Jeremy Clarkson. So uh, that that would be my pick. Uh, Brilliant. Brilliant. My kids absolutely love it. And um, for the, exactly the same reason. And you learn so much about farming and uh, what a tough life they have, you know. And you talk about people getting bailed out. If anyone should get bailed out or helped, it should be them because it's, you know, part of all our security that, that food is uh, is created in, in this country. But, yes, he did a, a lot of good for the farmers. Um, and, and um, yeah, just just absolutely excellent. And so I think the fact that it was done during the pandemic was actually made it like this. I think uh, I think season two or something. It was done during the pandemic or something. Or some of the episodes were during the pandemic. And yeah. It was just made it even more interesting. Yes, it's been it's been one season so far, but I think they might might be making another one, which would be which would be really good. So that's 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 a great choice. And I also remember reading how the guardian hated it and which which said it all to which me it's a they, stunding endorsement always yeah, a good endorsement exactly the, the guardian, guardian hates, hates it it's fantastic and well why is that i'm just, I'm just curious oh it's just a, the, a, the guardian is uh, if you don't know the guardian newspaper it's basically unreadable left-wing woke crap yeah it's oh. it's like if if you know for example there's this new you may have heard this new uh, Marvel thing, which is crashing, called She-Hulk, and of course the only people who liked it were the Guardian, and, oh, really? and like everybody else hates it. So I think this, I think they serve a very important role, like they guard the Guardian, because yeah, now yeah. you know, like you just do the opposite. Yes, so exactly, exactly. Uh, the perfect contraindicator, and I think actually it's compulsory that all Guardian staff paint themselves green and have confused <laughs> transgender issues. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, I, I gotta tell you the latest ESG story. My son called me today, and I thought it was that it, that it tells you so much what's wrong with the world. And it Guardian would have, you know, probably never published this story, I guess. But my son has a Starbucks reusable cup, like the plastic Starbucks cup that you can bring to them, and they would refill it. You yeah. know, you have to pay for it, right? Yeah. So it's like one of those things. So you do this so you don't kill the environment you know you consume less you know fewer uh, 
yeah, paper cups. So my son, very proud of his cup, goes to go to Starbucks, pays for refill, gives him the cup. They put it in a special mug, and then they literally brew coffee in a paper cup. <laughs> and then pour, pour it, it in. Pour, pour no. it and throw the cup away. And, and, that, <laughs> and that is and, uh, and so my son asked him like aren't you like how's it helping the environment they're like what do you mean like using a reusable cup oh my god but that's 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 yeah when you think about it a lot of ESG policies we have they yeah. kind of rhyme to that well let's not ask about the power source that fuels uh, electric cars then um yeah I actually kind of interesting I wrote like an like the so the when I like uh, one distraction I had I wrote a book it's not a book but it's a, almost like a like a series of essays I think ten or eleven essays if you put them into a little book uh, called the about Tesla mm, I saw because that because yeah. I own Tesla car and my, like and I love my Tesla car but I'm not I have no illusion that this is a green car none like like old like electric cars give us give us options. Meaning that, like where where you have a ice, you know, kind of ice car, like normal car, you only have one option for the most part. You know, I'm generalizing, which is just oil. Electric cars give you options. In Norway, you can use hydropower. In China, you can use coal. Okay. In in France, seventy percent of it is going to be nuclear. So there's giving you options, but I'm under no illusion that. They are like it's you know just because you drive electric it's green because what you're not seeing is that just just because it's not emitting uh, there is no uh, there is no exhaust pipe on that car doesn't mean there is no exhaust pipe on that uh, coal power plant um, and also and that's that's another issue it consumes a huge amount of energy and you know to build a battery as well so it's not a so. You know, but uh, anyway, so I'm, yeah, so I, I, so I do agree with you, and I, and I wrote a few essays on this topic. Uh, yeah, so as well, yeah. Well, what Vitaly just said just reminds me of my favorite joke of all time, quite literally of all time, and it's from a thing called Whoops Apocalypse, which was a TV series in the mid '80s here, mm. and they had a spin-off annual, and I bought the spin-off like Christmas annual, and they had, it was a comparison between the US. It was it's a comedy, so it's a comic thing. Had a comparison between the U.S. and the USSR, and so the U.S. was this you know, shining bastion of the high-tech technology, and every, everything coming out of the USSR was basically derived from like bent coat hangers being dragged over turnip fields and stuff. And it was it, it was mm. very well done. Anyhow, they they had they had the they showed you how like a Pershing missile worked, and then they had another page opposite, which was someone from from the USSR talking about the SS20, and he was a general, and he said. Yeah, it, it used to take us. Uh, it used to take 200 peasants to make the nose cone of an SS20, but we've since found that titanium is more hard wearing. Now that's actually one of my favorite jokes. But I'm. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, what, is, what is this S20? I'm sorry, I don't know what this is. It's just a missile. It's just a missile. It's a rocket. Oh, okay, okay. And it, sorry, it's, just, it's, sorry, it's, sorry. It's, a, it's a grammatical. Uh, it's a grammatical pun. So he says it, it. It took us 200 peasants to make the nose cone of an SS20, but we've since found that titanium is more hard wearing. 
Oh, okay. and I'm an extremely gratified that once again my my comedy moment has sunk <laughs> has sunk with all hands on this podcast because it, I, it reaffirms my belief in in fundamental humanity that I cannot I cannot tell a joke. To well, say I, think, I, think, I, I think you were the I think you were the guardian in this case of your joke. Yeah, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> Great um, stuff, um, Vitali. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I know how much you value your time. I know how much you pack into your day and. It's a real pleasure uh, to have you on. I'd like to wish you all the very best with your book and any forthcoming books, and also with the fund. And I'd, I'd hope one day that uh, if you have time, you could come back on the show again. Absolutely. I, uh, Tim and Paul, I, uh, Paul and Tim, I enjoyed it. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. And just as a final note, could you just remind the listeners where they can find you on all your handles? Oh, that's that's a thank you. Um, so I have a lazy man's podcast, which is basically my articles read to you by a narrator who is uh, sounds much better than I do. Um, so you can find it on investor.fm or just if you look for intellectual investor on uh, on iTunes, uh, whatever whatever you listen to podcast to. Um, you can find information about the book and get free chapters on soulinagame.net. Um, and there, you actually can be able to subscribe to receive my articles by email. And my articles come as my father's art, classical music. You know, so it's a, it's a lot of fireworks there. So, um, yeah, so this is soulinagame.net and investor.fm, just if you want to listen to the podcast. Fantastic. We'll include those in the show notes for you to click on and check out. Once again, Vitaly, thank you so much and uh, hope to see you again. So thanks again. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.